Well, we turn for our reading this evening to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Let us hear the word of God. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. May God bless this reading of his holy word. Let us turn 
to God in prayer. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for the way in which it has been inspired, breathed out by you. Thank you, Father, for these authors of old who wrote under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. We thank you in particular for Luke's gospel and for the record of the ministry of Jesus, the embodiment of your love towards sinners. We pray now as we come around your word that you would open our minds, that you would touch our hearts, that you would direct our wills in accordance with yours, and that you would so anoint the ministry of your word once again today that there would be those who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There would be those who come into a deeper understanding of the gospel, and that we, as your people, would reflect the great love that you have towards sinners. Father, thank you then for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that even through these different days, you would be working your will and purpose to bring your elect people unto yourself. In the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, in this uh, second gathering of the day, we want to consider together the theme of glorying in God's grace. And we're looking together at Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. The grace or the unmerited favor of God is, is most precious. We know the hymn very well, Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. There's a less familiar hymn by an 18th century Congregationalist minister, Philip Doddridge, in which it begins, grace, a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. And so it's a joy for us as God's people to return time and again to this theme of the grace of God. And I don't know about you, but I know for myself the need of doing so as I get older in the Christian faith and I trust you do too. We have both an internal and an external reason for returning time and again to the grace of God. First of all, internally. Isn't it true to say that our hearts are capable of replacing our simple trust in Jesus Christ with a trust in our own sanctification? That with the passing of the years as Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we take our eyes off Him and we begin to look at the distance we have come in the Christian faith and to put our trust in our holiness rather than in Christ Himself. And so, instead of saying to ourselves, look how far I've come in the faith, the older we get in Christ, the more it is our responsibility but also our joy to look to Christ and to find sweeter and sweeter comfort in Him. But then there's also an external reason for returning time and again to the grace of God. And that is because our congregations, our Christian communities, are capable of so trusting in our sanctification that we begin to start selecting those whom we welcome into our company. Since we are cleansed, we're capable of reasoning, we now only have time for clean 
people. Well, it was such dangers then that led Jesus to the parable of the lost son. And in order to understand this parable, we want to note in the background the context. At this point in Luke's gospel, a very clearly defined shift is taken from the coming of Christ from heaven to earth to the going of Christ to earth back to heaven. So when you come to chapter 9 and verse 51, we read that when the days drew near that Jesus should be offered up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. He was, in effect, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 50 and verse 7. The obedient servant setting his face like a flint against all opposition. The flint being the end of the spear against all opposition. And so you only have to go back a few chapters to chapter 13, verses 31 to 33, where you get an idea of the context here. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the third day and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is heavy upon the mind and heart of the Lord Jesus. And in the background then, we see not only this context, but also the contrast. Because although some of the Pharisees were warning Jesus that Herod wanted to kill him, we need to remember that there are about 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day. A contrast has opened up between the message of divine grace on the one hand and the Pharisees' self-reliance on the other. A reliant on personal merits went hand in hand then with rejecting Christ and his message of grace. But Jesus wants to proclaim grace. And so we find as we come into chapter 15 that those who have blown it in life are drawn to Jesus like a magnet. Verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Imagine that. The holiest person ever to have walked this earth is drawing to himself those who are the marginalized, the corrupt and embezzling tax collectors. The sinners, a euphemism for the prostitutes and the marginalized, are drawn to Jesus. But notice what happens in verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And thus it has ever been. There are basically just two religions in the history of the world. One pertaining to the grace of God, which is a magnet drawing tax collectors and sinners to the Lord Jesus. And the other one then of personal merit, which not only boasts in self, but is repelled by those in need of the grace of God. And so thirdly, in the background, we notice the conflict. These two religions in the history of the world do not coexist very uh, happily. So Jesus lovingly tackles head-on those who are around him claiming personal merit. And he does so because personal destinies, eternal destinies, 
are at stake. And so he tells three parables. The first, verses 3 to 7, the lost sheep. The second, the lost coin, verses 8 to 10. And now the lost son, verses 11 to 32. And so following on from verse 2, Jesus' whole purpose in this parable is to justify his right to receive sinners, those who are drawn to him. Instead of repelling them, he embraces them within the grace of God. And so as we come to the parable then, notice the three players and who they represent. We'll come across, first of all, the younger son. In the context, of course, he represents the tax collectors and the sinners, the marginalized in their sins. But in the broader history, they represent those who have left the church and fallen short of her standards. And then there's the older son, who in the context represents the hostile Pharisees. But in the history of the church, they represent those who are still in the church, but whose beliefs are contrary to the gospel of God's grace. And then, of course, there is the father. In the context, he represents Christ, who coming in flesh is, according to Isaiah 9, verse 6, the everlasting Father. And yet, of course, the delight of God the Son is to point to God the Father. And so the immediate context speaks of Christ and His relationship to those who've blown it in life. And yet, in the broader context, He teaches us so much of the fatherhood of God. Well, let us turn then to the parable, learning first of all from the younger son, verses 12 through the first half of verse 20. Notice three matters, and first of all, his privileges. And the younger of the sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So clearly, the younger son has a wealthy father. We know that because not everybody had property to give away. We also know it because of the many servants that he has. So the father's allotment of the son's share of the inheritance was not unusual in these days in the East, but it's interesting that he still has plenty left over. So the parable then depicts the wealth of God and his willingness to share it with his people. And so Jesus refers specifically then to the spiritual privileges that the tax collectors and the sinners inherited by being born and brought up amongst God's ancient people in the covenant community of Israel. And our minds then cross over to Romans 9 verse 4 where Paul describes the six major blessings of Israel in history. First of all, the adoption adopted as the Son of God at Mount Sinai, the glory, the cloud of God's glory that came amongst them, the covenants which other nations didn't know, didn't have, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and then the worship and the promises. But what was true for the tax collectors and the sinners in their day can also be true in ours. Our minds go to those who had access to the wealth of God. They were born and brought up in the Christian church. They had a Bible in their own language at home. They were brought to church. They were taught in Sunday school. They had marvelous youth leaders. They heard the Word of God being preached Sunday by Sunday, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. 
And over the course of time, they threw away the heritage. They walked out and disregarded the privileges with which they were born by being born into the church. And so secondly, we notice this younger son's plight, verses 13 through 16. What good this younger son could have done had he implied, applied the inheritance to the cause of God in this world. Instead, in the folly of sin, we can trace his journey down into destitution, whereby he comes in his sin to his wit's end. Notice phase one, verse 13, his decision. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. In other words, he forsook God's people and he became a prodigal. Now, let me make it clear that you don't have to be a prodigal son in order to be a lost son. And we'll come on to that. But this man is prodigal because he is reckless. He is wastefully extravagant with the heritage that he has received. So he goes off into the far country and he spends it all. And then phase two, his discovery, verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. You see, this is what happens when we spurn our spiritual heritage. We think that we are sovereign. We think that we are divine. We think that we can do whatever we please. But this younger son has not factored in the sovereignty of God and the lengths that God will go to in his severe mercy to bring the wandering back to himself. And so there is a famine, a severe famine in this far country that this younger son cannot cannot control. And so he becomes in need. It's interesting that the word need there, a Greek term, is that which has originated our word hysteria or hysterical. So he's becoming hysterical given that there's something going on in this far country that he cannot control. And so his best life now is turning into a nightmare. Phase 3, verses 15 to 16. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This will be very familiar to us, I'm sure, that when we reject the Father's love, when we reject the love of Christ, and we leave the safety of the church, and we decide to go it our own way. We go into the far country. We think we can control everything about life. And then God, in his severe mercy, brings something into our life that we cannot control. That's where this younger son is at. Notes, he is sent to feed pigs, which to him would have been an unclean animal, according to Leviticus 11, verses 26 to 27. He can't eat them. Because the law tells him not to eat the pigs. He can't touch the dead carcasses of the pigs. And the fact of the matter is no one gives him anything to eat. And so he is reduced to longing 
after the pods. God has brought him to a lonely place in which he has taught through his senses the filth of his own heart. Imagine him looking at his clothes as he's with the, the pigs in the filth, feeding an animal which, according to the law with which he grew up, is unclean. And as he looks at his clothes, as he looks at the pig, God is bringing down upon his mind the realization that he is as unclean in his sin. And so God's severe mercy here gives us hope. It gives hope to those who are coming to the end of themselves. It's when they are alone, when they are face to face with the depth of their sin, that they begin to remember God. Isn't this one of our hopes for the coronavirus? That when people are alone in their isolation, that when they are faced with their lives in the context of their certain mortality, that they might remember God. My mind goes to Psalm 107, verse 27. We reel and stagger like drunken men. We were at our wit's end. So there's hope for those who are the younger son. But there's also hope for those burdened relatives and friends who see friends and relatives going down into this destitution. It's painful to watch. A loved one slide to their wit's end. Yet we pray that it's in that very context of humbling that God gets through to them, that God calls them back to himself. And so thirdly, of the younger son, we notice his penitence, verses 17 through the first half of verse 20. Repentance, it is certain, is better late than never. Notice his right mind, verse 17. He came to himself. He recognizes not only the folly of his sin, but the misery of it. And the gospel wisdom begins to dawn on him. He would have been far better off, he reasons, as a servant of his father than as a son in squalor and obscurity. Notice his right intent, verse 18. I will arise and go to my father. He doesn't say, well, I hope my father comes and gets me out of this trouble. That's what the impenitents say when claiming salvation never happened to them. It never happened to me. It's really a foil to cover an impenitent heart. Rather, he determines to return to his father. And so while repentance then is a gift of God, it is a gift that the younger son is to exercise himself. Notice then his right attitude, second half of verse 18 and 19. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He confesses his sin against the love of God by calling him Father. He confesses his sins against the holiness of God by acknowledging he sinned against heaven. He acknowledges his sin against the generosity of God by having sinned before God in heaven. And in it all, he deduces that he has lost the right to be a son of God. And so notice his action, the first half of verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. He doesn't hold back. He gets going to his father. This is what we call the joy of repentance. And so secondly, then, we come on to the second half of verse 20 through 24. 
learning from the Father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Picture the son. We don't know how far he's traveled. He's been in a far country, but by the time he gets near home, he's likely weary, ragged in his dress, and thirsty. That's how we come to God in repentance. Remember the beginning of the Beatitudes, and you can look those up in Matthew 5 for yourself. But consider the father's response. First of all, his feeling. Doubtless the father has gazed out from his home many days. Which is the day my son is going to return? And one day, there he was in the distance. And so, Jesus piles up these actions of the Father. He saw, he felt, he ran, he embraced, he kissed him. Now, when we think of the emotion of the Father, then we are not to think that the Father somehow changes. All along, the Father has been faithful to his unfaithful Son, loving him enough not to coerce his return loving him enough to run out, seeing him, feeling for him, running, embracing, kissing him. The hope for destitute sinners then lies not in their repentance, but in the Father's readiness to welcome them home. Recall Augustus Top Lady's hymn, Rock of Ages, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Here we see the readiness of the Father to do so. So the second thing we notice about the Father then is his forgiveness, verses 21 and 22. Notice that his love precedes the confession. The Father's love is not conditional on the confession, and yet it is fitting that the Son make confession of his unworthiness in his sins. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So since confession then indicates agreement with God, the father does not dwell upon the details of what the son has done wrong. Instead, he pours out his love and grace on him, and he does so in two ways. Notice verse 22. The father dresses him as a son, the best robe. Christ here is surely thinking ahead to the cross. There he got our sin and died, and we get his righteousness and live. Here, Chris Anderson's hymn, His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange, clothed in my sin. Christ suffered neath God's rage, draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. This was the great discovery of Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation, what we call the wonderful exchange. Christ going ahead to the cross, having procured a perfect righteousness that we cannot, it is reckoned to the account of sinners. And our sin reckoned to Christ. He dies upon the cross, that which we celebrate this week. But there's more to the grace of the Father. The Father grants him authority to be his son. This is what the ring signifies, typically with a seal on it to say to whom it belongs. It reminds us of the prologue of John's gospel, John 1.12, the right or authority to be the child of God. And so the ring says that this younger son, despite his history, belongs to the father. 
and he has the authority to call himself a son of the Father, even though he recognized that all he deserved was to be a servant. And so he's also given shoes, indicating that he has returned to the wealth of the Father. But whereas before it was, give me, give me, give me, let me spend the wealth of my Father on myself, now he recognizes that that wealth which is grace to him is to be spent in the cause of the Father. Surely this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote in Ephesians 1, 7 to 8, that God has lavished, it's a powerful word, lavished His grace upon us. And so thirdly, in learning of the Father, His feast, verses 23 to 24. For one thing, the feast is joyful. Jesus unpacks the point made in verse 7, the return the joy in the return of a sinner. And so killing the best calf points to this, as does the father's explanation. His son was dead. We know what that means. Spiritually dead, but has been made alive. He was lost, but is now found. And so the father never stopped regarding his son as his own. And for another thing, the feast is communal. That's what feasts are. So the question comes to us then as the Lord's people, whether we have the generosity of the Father, whether we rejoice, whether we feast, whether we celebrate together when prodigals return. I've always been impressed by the statement of Jim Cimbala of Brooklyn Tabernacle, New York. He says in the light of verse 7, that there's not rejoicing in heaven and on earth when a person moves from church A to church B. There's rejoicing in heaven and upon earth when sinners return to God, when sinners come home. And that's what we are to aim at, and that is the priority of our rejoicing. And so thirdly then, verses 25 to 32, we come to learning from the older son, It's interesting that the older son also comes home. Outwardly, he is neither lost nor as good as dead. And while he's not the prodigal the younger son is, he's certainly lost. So all is not right. Like the Pharisees, he pours cold water on the celebration. And we notice two matters in this regard. First of all, his heart, verses 25 to 30. What is within becomes obvious by these going-ons here in the parable. Notice verse 25, what he hears. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Literally, he heard a symphony or a concert, meaning that there's music and singing, and then we're told There's dancing as well, and it's interesting that both the terms in Greek are used here exclusively in the New Testament. So he's puzzled about what's going on in his father's home, and the reason he's puzzled is this. There's no rejoicing in his own life, and so he's not accustomed to joining in the music and the dancing, and he goes then to the servants. So, notice about his heart what he does. Significant that he does not go to the father. 
he goes to the servants. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. It seems that although this older son is not the prodigal of the younger son, he has no more of a relationship with the father than the younger son. And yet, the servant says to him, your brother has come. Understand from that then that we can be a prodigal in life or we can be a Pharisee in life, but we have the same nature. The prodigal and the Pharisee are brothers, and both are in need of the grace of the Father. And so, between the Pharisee who is the legalist and the tax collector and sinner, the licentious, both need a relationship to the Father. And then notice what he was, first half of verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. Imagine that for a moment. His brothers returned, death to life, lost to found. But this older son is angry and he refuses to go in. We must ask ourselves, how many in our churches today, when the grace of God in the gospel impacts somebody, restores their life, brings them back into the company of God's people, seated under the Word, seated under the prayers of God's people, that there are people in our congregations who begrudge that fact. There are people in our congregations who would prefer them to stay outside the church than to come in and to challenge the chemistry that we have. And so notice what he said, verses 29 to 30. His father comes out to him. Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property and pros with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now we get to the heart of the issue. He's seeking to earn the favor of the father by a loveless duty. He feels he's lived the perfect life, failing to realize that the stores of God's grace for his respectable sins have been accessible to him all along. Now, we are living in the time in history in the Western world where there are many people who have left the professing church. And if we are going to preach the grace of God and to pray for many younger sons to return, we are going to be tested to the core of our beings as to whether we are like the father or whether we are like the older son. Celebrating God's grace or revealing ourselves by our reactions to be in need of that grace. So the notion that we can claim grace for ourselves and yet begrudge it to others is surely repugnant in the New Testament. What is the attitude of those imitating the Father? It is to pray for prodigals to return. It is to long for prodigals to return. It is to watch out for prodigals to return. This then is the heart of 
the older son, then to close, his hope. Again, verse 18, verses 31 to 32. You see, it's possible to become a Pharisee even in the process of disparaging Pharisees. God, I thank you that I'm not like a Pharisee. And so we notice here the love of the Father for Pharisees too. And so the second half of verse 18, 28 rather, the Father goes out to the older son as he had first gone out to the younger son and he entreats him to come into the celebration, come in to celebrate the return of the younger son. Grace, we have to insist, is for respectable sinners as well as for scandalous sinners. We ought not to go from one extreme to the other of saying there's no grace for scandalous sinners. It's only for respectable sinners. And then to say there's no grace for respectable sinners because it's all for scandalous sinners. No, there's a marvelous balance here in the parable. The father runs out to the younger son who's come from the far country. But he also goes out to the older son. And notice the assurance, the father's assurance, verse 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You see, the younger son had squandered the inheritance, the property, publicly. Everybody knew about it. He couldn't hide it. But the older son has squandered the inheritance privately in his own heart and in his own mind. He sat under the preaching of the word, or she, been to Sunday school perhaps, been engaged in the life of the church, and yet in the secret confines of their mind have had this idea that that person needs the grace of God. I don't. And the father comes and says, listen, if we are in church, but we have still not yet grasped that we each need the grace of God in our own way, then we too are squandering the inheritance that we have received. And so the Father's appeal, verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The Father says to us all, this is what my grace is about. It's there to be celebrated, whether our background in having fallen short of the glory of God is in respectable sin, private sin, sins that people are more inclined to accept, or whether it is in the realm of scandalous sin that cannot be hidden, everybody knows about, everybody frowns on. We all need the grace of of God. And so we come back to that point with which we began, that grace is amazing. The very word grace, it is a charming sound, harmonious to our ears. It's sufficient for the scandals. It's sufficient for the respectable. And our celebrations here, when sinners return, will culminate ultimately in the great feast that is to come. The prophet Isaiah speaks of it, Isaiah 25, verse 6. 
the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Picture in your minds the final day when all gathered around the throne, all with our personal histories. And some will look at, will think their life was squeaky clean, and will come to realize that they are there solely for the grace of God because God has poured out his grace upon them for their respectable sins, the sins that went under the radar. And then there will be those who blew it. And we will have known that they blew it. And it may well be that they'll be rejoicing the most. He who has forgiven much loves much. My mind goes to my friend Rich who died in 2007 of pancreatic cancer. And as he lay there in his bed, dying of cancer, he kept saying this, mentioning names of friends who had already died. I'm coming to the party. I'm coming to the party. Well, he was looking beyond the feast in this life of people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus looking to that day when all God's elect are around the throne, saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a scandalous wretch like me, a respectable wretch like me. And it will all be to God's glory. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we acknowledge how much we have needed your grace. And we ask, O oh God, that we would never lose sight of the gospel. That whatever our personal histories, that we would own that our relationship to you as our Father in Christ and by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is by grace alone. Come then, we pray. And bless this word we ask to our hearts and help us never to forget what you've done for us and help us to so apply what you've done to us and for us in Christ that when we see others returning, weary, ragged, and worn, we might, like the Father, run out to them, feel for them, embrace them, kiss them, and welcome them home. Father, thank you for the Church of Jesus Christ, but we thank you above all for that gathering that's going to be around your throne when all those who by your grace have received your grace say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. We bless you then for the gospel. Help us to live it out in Jesus' name. We sang now, how deep the Father's love for us.